0: Rain, we got rained. Yeah, it's a good thing. There's so much I want to talk to you about. I always find, you know, I, write, I find myself writing little notes and pieces of paper, and, you know, it's like your best friend, you know, you want to share stuff with. And So whenever I write a talk, it, it just, there's so much, and then I have to make it make sense, because my mind... Doesn't always make sense to other people. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> um, but I do want to share. You know, I want to share things that I've learned from the Dharma. I want to share some important aspects and useful tools for how to practice with mindfulness. Um, but first, I want to share with you a little bit of my um, my life as a child, because I think it matters. Because I was probably that kid in the classroom that, because I work with young people too, so um, that kid that I sometimes wanted to disappear, right? Like, I just didn't really want them to be there because <laughs> I was messing with my plan. And so I was that kid. Um, I grew up in a town called South Pasadena. We have two up, ups to South Pass in this room. Um, I went to a Catholic school called Holy Family, and... I was one of two brown kids in the whole school. So that was, that and, you know, that's a whole subset of my problems. But um, I was a fighter. And I was an A student with an F in conduct. <laughs> so every credit card, every credit card, every, uh, what do call report card, A in everything, F in conduct. And it just made my teachers mad. <laughs> and most of them were nuns. So it was sort of like, they didn't know how to deal with me because I was an engaged student, I was present, I was there, I was willing to learn, I wanted to learn, and I loved to distract my friends, and I loved to pull pranks, and I loved I got impeached. I was president of the school in eighth grade, (laughs) and I got impeached because I stole bonbons from the nuns. And you know, it's just like that kind of stuff, right, (laughs) like an effing conduct. so I had a really interesting, you know, juxtaposition with education and with, you know, I loved, I loved the mind, I loved learning, I, I found a lot of value in it, but I was also one of those students who could learn really quickly. So you better, you better keep moving, because the second I got bored, I was going to make sure the whole, everybody else knew it, right? So. Um, you know, I, I, many other challenges passed that once I was in high school. Homelessness, arrests, all kinds of good stuff. Drug dealing. You know, I have, I have a really great high school um, history. But sitting with all of you reminded me more of my um, elementary school years. And what also reminded me of this was, was also the meeting of um, a contemplative practice, because although I was this wreck of a kid, really, I mean, I had a lot of fun, but I was a mess. Um, I, but I went to a Catholic school, and every day, every day, we were in, um, in church. And most of what we were doing was either the rosary or some kind of contemplation, right? Some of it was prayer, but even if we, if, if we look at prayer and repetitive prayer, it puts us in a really concentrated, still, calm space right? That prayer gets us there. The the rosary beads and malas are almost like the same thing. You know, the mala beads that are used in both the Hindu and Buddhist tradition, you're, we're, we're, it, there's an intention on each bead. The rosary, there's a prayer on each bead, right? So these ways that from a very young age, um, the inner world really mattered. And I'm saying that just as sort of a, a point of Possibility, Because I know a lot of you brought up this interest in not only having your own um, relationship <coughs> to this mindfulness practice or this inner contemplative practice, but that it's appealing to you to share it, right? And so I'm, I'm not going to get so much into that because I could because I've done a lot of educating on how to share mindfulness with young people. But one of the most important things that I've learned and how I work with young people well, and I'm sure so many of you know this, is by really engaging myself in my practice. It's not about, oh, you need to be mindful, right? It's not about you need to be still. It's not about there's something wrong with you. But how can I model? How can I show up? How can I be so grounded and present that... I don't even have to tell somebody, it just happens, us being together, right? There's all these amazing scientific research projects on mirror neurons and, you know, how we affect each other. And our presence affects each other. And one of the things I loved in some of our meetings that was so much fun was, oh, I don't have a problem with the kids, I only have a problem with the adults. (laughs) Right, so the other people in our administrations or our organizations are the ones we have the issues with, not so much the kids. And I'm sure you can all relate to that. like when we're in our depth of our depth of solidity, groundedness and honesty, our kids get us. They just do. They can tell when we are out of sync, when we're being inauthentic, when we, our empathic response is gone because we're too busy worrying about control, our curriculum, our agenda and outcome, right? So I just like how these can really pair, this practice, metaphorically, that external experience that we we might have with our students or our uh, whatever situation that we're in, how metaphorically it can really mirror what's going on for us internally. And so I'm hoping that some of my talks talks about that and I don't get (laughs) sidetracked. But um, does that make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? yeah and I'm, I'm sure you do and you're probably seeing more and more of that as we go um, okay I'm going to do this because I think it's going to keep it closer to my mouth it's a little weird but okay <laughs> so, so I want to point to two things um, first like, what mindfulness is what mindfulness isn't or I don't know which one I'll do first but sort of that idea um, we're watching the term mindfulness become very catchphrase and used to the point of where um, they're teaching snipers how to be mindful, right, so that their shooting can be more accurate. You can be a better golfer and make more money on the pro circuit if you play mindful golf. You can lose weight if you're mindful. You can, you know, we, we know. There, okay, I go to go the myriad. Sex is better, all of it, right? mindful books on every single thing that we can do. And one of the things also that I think the educational world has done is we can control our kids through mindfulness. We can get them to be quiet. We can get them to be still. And it kind of goes back to what I was pointing to before, is mindfulness in and of itself does not have an end game. It does not have a goal. It does not have a, a purposeful, you know, like, oh, here's the, here's the grail, right? Then I think that can be a little disillusioning to some people if we're coming, because we do come, many of us come. If I asked you now, why did you come to mindfulness besides wanting kids in your school? Just some hands. Who? Stress reduction? grief Dealing with grief. Dealing with grief. Calming my nervous system. Calming my nervous system. yeah. Well for interactions with others beautiful, so relational practices mm-hmm. I started meditating before I knew what mindfulness was mm-hmm. and i was I thought I was teaching mindfulness and then i and I wasn't really but so what I turned med- you to mod- meditation then uh, sadness mm-hmm. sadness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess sustaining myself throughout the year like I'm a different person in the spring semester than I am in the fall mm-hmm. trying to prevent that from happening mm-hmm. interesting yeah. so maybe a vulnerability to mm-hmm. external circumstances mm-hmm. would that be uh, accurate? yeah, usually things just like pile up throughout the year and so yeah. I just find myself being less present yeah, mm-hmm. thank you anyone else? Mm-hmm. increase energy to increase energy, good Good. So these are all true. Yes, these things are 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 totally possible when we meditate, for sure. And they can make us more accurate. If you want to be a sniper, they can make us more focused. If you know, as an artist or as a poet or as a you know whatever whatever our passions are, certainly they can. It's kind of like adding the salt. You know, it adds the salt. It definitely helps us show up in in a different way for it. And ultimately, what the practice is really trying to help us do is have the capacity and the ability for full liberation from pain and suffering like completely, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds nice to be calm. It sounds nice to be stress-free. And what if, just what if, we met life exactly as it was Versus us trying to control life so it would fit an idea of what would help make it feel better for us. And so, when we look at the mindfulness practice, it's kind of it. It can feel really. Uh, I feel so nervous when I say big words in this room because I'm like, it might be the wrong word, and somebody knows that. So it can feel really counterintuitive. I'll use that because I know that's right. It can feel really <laughs> counterintuitive. To us, as practitioners, to say, "Oh, this human body is—I'm go- going to allow myself to feel pain. I'm going to allow myself to feel fear. I'm going to allow myself to feel grief, sadness, loneliness." Right? Because the, the this mechanism, this very biodiverse body, wants to survive. That's what it wants to do. That's its goal is to survive. And so what surviving means is to not feel pain, right? It means danger, get me out of here. Danger, get me out of here. That's rational, um, totally normal. But these systems weren't designed to have to do that all the time. These systems were designed to do that when true danger arises. And so I noticed when I was over on that cliff and I have that, I have that deep, deep desire to, I'm going to just go a little bit further. I How far can I go, like? A little bit further, right? But my survival like I want to live. Falling would be fun for a second, <laughs> and then not very fun anymore. So our bo- these, these bodies are designed to survive. And so that means warding off danger, knowing what, right? So when, when something painful, uncomfortable arises, of course our mind is going to kick in and be a really good personal assistant and friend and try to help us figure out how to get rid of it or how to make us more comfortable in it. Our mind is really adaptive and it learns how to cope. It learns how to distract it learns how to fight. It learns how to push away. So that's one of the things when we get uncomfortable that we do, right? We push stuff away. I mean, that's normal. And we can do it to to, to a point of where it just becomes what we do all the time when we're slightly uncomfortable. So I'll use a really minor um, example. When we're sitting here on the cushion... So we're sitting here, we're sitting here. You know. As, has anybody not gotten uncomfortable while sitting in the chair cushion during a 30 minute period? Anybody? No. So just look around you. Just so you know, if you're judging yourself and comparing to anybody else, not one person raised their hands. We all get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable. Erin, do you get uncomfortable? Heck yeah. We get uncomfortable. Okay. So this body, when we're uncomfortable, what, what we want to do is shift our posture. And, you know, it's fine to shift your posture. It's not a big deal. But when we think about it in terms of control or in terms of just avoiding discomfort, it can really run the show. So every single time I'm uncomfortable, it's kind of like, oh, no, that doesn't feel good. Okay, I'm going to move just a little bit, just a little bit. I promise that. Oh, yeah, that's good, right? Yeah, I could do this. This feels good. Yeah, perfect. And you're like, uh-oh, mm-mm, mm-hmm. no, oh yeah, I can feel that down here. Okay, just a little, no one's going to hear me. I'll be really quiet. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to a little bit Then here. Okay, oh yeah, per- I could do this for the next 20 minutes for sure. Okay. And you know what I'm getting at. And then, then it comes again. And so we spend our whole life, so I'm using this as like microcosm, macrocosm, we spend our whole life, if I just shift that thing a little bit, it'll be okay. If I just, right, if I just don't talk to that person for a couple days, life will be okay. If I just quit that job or if I just move to another neighborhood or if I just, and I'm not saying that sometimes that's not needed, but we find ourselves making all these changes. We make a lot of changes in our life to get comfortable. And then the other side of that is when we like something, you know, when when something feels so good. And then we spend all of our time planning how we can get more of what we like. And we're not spending any time actually enjoying that moment of pleasure. Okay, I'm going to plan a trip. I'm going to plan my next retreat. I'm going to... Whatever it is that our mind is doing to, again, help us leave the moment. So I, I, I... I like this list and I've worked with it a few times and people that have sat with me before have heard it and it's this list of what can I control and what can't I control, right? For real, like what can I control and what can't I control? And being here in nature, it's so beautiful seeing these trees. Like one of my favorite things to see are the downed trees, you know, these skeletons. Like we're walking past all of these bodies (coughs) that have been regal and, and... full of life, right? And now they're just laying down. Um, And and unfortunately, in our culture especially, we don't have an appreciation for the dead body, right? We're so afraid of it. It's not something that we get to, to watch and see the beauty of its decay. But in nature, we get to see the beauty of decay and the naturalness of decay, right? The naturalness of the passing. So when we look at what can't I control, well, we know we can't control Death, right? That is, that is a given. The when's, the hows, the whys—that we don't usually know. Um, death's something we can't control. Aging? Nope. <laughs> we try real hard. Multi-billion-dollar industry, anti-aging. You know, can't we? Can, no matter what. I don't care how much we do. We can't. Can we live healthier, longer lives? Sure. But are we going to age? Yes. Do we get sick? Do these bodies get sick? Is there anybody in here that's never been sick? Yeah. So those are, you know, we can count on that. We can count on, we oftentimes will not get what we want. Would that be fair to say? And I think we can count on oftentimes getting things we don't want. Right? Would that be fair to say? So these are just, this is true, right? This, it's just true. These things happen. We can also count on the fact that if I open my hand, what's going to happen to this pen? It's going to fall. And if I say, you know, I'm a really good person. I meditate every day. I'm really kind to all my friends. Please don't drop. I'm good. I'm good. I'm a really good person right and if i sat here judging myself because that pen dropped don't suck there, like a lot of life would be really hard i would be navigating against nature that's nature there's so many natural laws like time and that's one gravity and all kinds of things that you science teachers could tell me, that, you know, we can, that you're, they're just true, right? And we don't spend a whole lot of our mental energy trying to, I mean, maybe some scientists and research labs get some funding and try to, you know, get into it. But, but for, most, for the most part, unless you're a two-year-old throwing their peas off of their, you know, tray, you, we get gravity, right? It's just true. And then what are, so those are things we can't control. And, and for the most part, you know, if we could just like give into that, because it's going to happen either way. What is it like just to go, oh yeah, that's what's going to happen. What are some of the things that you can't control, but you wish you could? Well, I've been a runner for 32 years and my knee's now shot. <laughs> mm, I saw you on the trail today. So the orthopedist says, oh, We can't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to just accept it. Mm. Yeah, thank you. yeah, thank you. Please. Can your partner's mood when they wake up? Yes, right. <laughs> so it'd be fair to say we cannot control other people. Yeah. And how much time do we spend trying to do that? Like, for real. How much time do we try to spend, you know, controlling other people? What they think of us, what they do. I mean, that takes up a lot of energy. Most of of, us spend our entire school year trying to control. To control, right. That's right. Trying to control. There was this kid, Johnny, that I had in, um, I was working at a, a housing project called Ramona Gardens teaching... When I say working out, I mean teaching mindfulness, meditation, emotional intelligence, anger management, that kind of stuff. And this little kid Johnny, I mean he was that kid that you love so much, you know? And he also was that kid that made it so hard to do my work. Just made it so hard. But the thing that ha- and I kept wanting to ask Johnny to leave the room, mm-hmm. right? Like, Johnny, do you really want to be here? You don't have to be here if you don't want to be here. You can go. Johnny really wanted to be there, right? But Johnny had Coke and Cheetos for breakfast. You know, he had a dad in prison. He had a mom who had three jobs. He had five siblings. He didn't have a bedroom. Mm -hmm. Right, so I wanted to control this child whose causes and conditions and circumstances in no way would allow him to be present. So, so, anyway, what can't I control, right? I could not control a lot about his life, and you all know what I'm talking about. And this does not only happen in poverty. This happens in families that have a lot of money. This happens in places that have resources. It happens in places that don't have resources. The neglect of children is just, like, huge, <laughs> right? So, can't control... What else can't we control? Did I see your hand up, Lisa? It was actually exactly way you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I used to work with dependent, neglect kids and mm-hmm. I always wanted to control what was happening to them. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a big deal. And so then what do we do, right? To breathe in something? When you used to hurting. just popped it. <laughs> Do you know who Parker Palmer is? Mm-hmm. Parker Palmer is a—he's an author. He's written many books on teaching. Um, he's also—you know—he's a—he's a strong Christian man, so he teaches with a lot of faith. And he—he um, he always talks about that kid in the corner, the kid in the corner. So he tells this one story, and he was—I think he was at a university level teaching, and there was this kid and he had that look of the athlete and the popular kid and he was sitting and he wasn't paying attention and his hat was covering his face. And, you know, Parker Palmer during the whole, the time he was talking, it's hard to say that name, Parker Palmer, the whole time in his mind, he found himself like, instead of teaching to the whole room, he was just like mad at that kid the whole time, right? So anyway, he teaches his class. He's very disturbed and unsettled when he's done and he's walking to his car and he's just, and this kid approaches him. Now, this is a kid he doesn't know. And this kid approaches him and said, thank you so much for everything you taught I learned this, that, this, that, that, right. And this kid had been listening to everything and was completely present. But he just, his affect didn't, wasn't giving exactly what Parker Palmer needed at that moment to be feel like a good teacher. You know, so he said it was a huge lesson for him on this idea of, A, what can I control, what can't I control, who's listening, how we're listening, what's going on, but then how am I receiving it, how am I holding it, what's happening then to my internal process based on the external experience I'm having with whoever, whether it's a lover, a friend, a student, a family member, our boss, right? So we're we're engaging with the what can't we control out there, I mean, I yeah, what can't we control out there? But then the engagement comes inside. And this is what we're learning how to do here. It's how do we then, how do we navigate this internal world? What's our tipping point? What's your tipping point of frustration? What, what is it that suddenly you go from, yeah, I'm mindful, I got this, I'm good, I'm comfortable. What is, what's that thing that suddenly find yourself tipping over into a space that you don't know how to navigate well, that maybe you're unkind, that maybe you're totally not present, that maybe fear arises or anger arises, right? And not saying that any of those things are bad. They're very human. But what this practice helps us do is be so much more clear on the what's, the why's, the how's, the when's. Our wisdom, our wisdom changes with this practice. Our clarity changes with this practice. Our availability and possibility (coughs) to do it differently changes with this (coughs) practice. And so one of the things I'd like us to pay attention to As our days go on, are those little things? Because for the most part, the big stuff isn't here, right? Not saying that it's not going on and that it's disappeared, but while you're here, it's really interesting for us to kind of practice with what annoys us. Like it might be (coughs) the person who's going too slow in front of us in the food line. Or how could they be taking so much food? Or why do they eat so little? Or why are we walking so slow on the trail? Or why does my tent... Whatever, right? Whatever the little tiny stuff is that arises here. This is our opportunity to practice so that we can engage with the bigger things when we go out there. This is an opportunity because we are habitual creatures. We are habit formed. Each and every one of you, if I took, you know, 30 minutes with you and you told me about your neighborhood, your family your society, your era, your culture, your friends, right? All of your your history. If I look at each one of you, I'm actually looking at 50,000 people behind each of you, right? You are just a big lump. We are big lumps and bubbles of causes and conditions, right? That all come together. They create everything in us. They create our likes and our dislikes. They create our biases. They create the world that we see. They create our vision, our view. Because we we've been we've kind of been created, right? Throughout our lives. So what, when we when we move into this practice, it gives us an opportunity to disentangle some of those causes and conditions that cause us a lot of suffering, that cause us a lot of pain. Is this making sense? Because it's easy to live in story. I have a really good story. I could tell you all some stories about my life. And I could walk around living and being that story. And I'd probably be pretty violent and pretty angry and pretty unhappy. I might be using, I might have six more kids. I might be living, you know, somewhere that isn't comfortable to me or whatever, you know. So, we look at how and how and what we're working with all the time in, out here and in here. And really try to, instead of just <coughs> putting big, you happen to be right in front of me, like right, big judgments on this body, like, oh, who are you, all of you, every part of you? who am I? Every part of me, all of me. But the ways that we reject other people, it doesn't matter who the person is, right? Do you know who Brene Brown is? Mm -hmm. Brene Brown, another, I think she calls herself a social scientist, (laughs) Mm -hmm. would be an accurate um, description of her, writes phenomenal books. And one of the books that she wrote recently is, is about belonging. And she talks about how we... Um, describe people as animals, as we, we dehumanize people that we don't like. Right? We turn them into aliens, or animals in some way, pigs, apes. Right. This is how we as humans can be cruel or unkind to another human, is by dehumanizing them. And so when we do that, because bias, object, object, bias, out there, out there, out there, out there, then we feel safer. But when we start working on this practice, we realize, we start to see, oh, I also do that to myself. How often do we reject ourselves? How often do we abandon ourselves when we don't like, I don't like how I'm behaving right now. Let's fix that. Let's push it away. Let's move it. Let's change it. Right? I don't like my body. I don't like... Whatever. So, when we get into mindfulness, sitting, engaging with the truth of phenomenon as it's arising, these stories, these habit patterns of thought, we can slowly start to untangle them and just see them for what they really are. See them for a human that ha- is having a human experience and living in a human body. Sound, sound accurate to some experience? Because when some things are so... You know, I, I wrote a list of the things that are really, really difficult that are going on right now. And I'm, I'm going to name them, and I also want people, what I've forgotten or I'm ignorant to or just didn't put in my list... Um, I'd like for people to also call out. Because there are things that are going on now that the children in our lives are not free from knowing about. There was a time when, I mean, when I was young, I was ignorant. I was totally and completely ignorant. You know, I was born in 1965. We had a TV that turned channels. That's all I knew or saw. And so now, ourselves and the kids that we're engaging with, when we look at these things, what can I control, what can't I control, um, I just want to name them so they're in the, so that it's in the room. Um, and it kind of goes with the movement, the you know, Say Her Name movement, hashtag Say Her Name, which um, I don't know if some of you are aware of, but there was a lot of, uh, we knew about a lot of black male bodies that were being assassinated by police in the streets. so we didn't hear about the female bodies. So there was a, a movement called Say Her Name. Um, so I just want to name a few of the separation of families and the immigration laws, the school shootings, the Muslim ban, the suicide rate, which is 50% higher than it was 20 years ago, the Me Too movement, clean water and capitalism, Oxycontin and heroin use, school-to-prison pipeline, which now we're looking at the immigration-to-prison pipeline, Homo and transphobia, and then bathroom laws that are attached to that, and who you are, lo- who you love, attached to that. White supremacy out in the open. Climate change. The assassination of black bodies in the streets. And please, whatever um, needs to be said. Um, if anything, I've forgotten. Mm-hmm. Equity and resources for our kids. Thank you. Bias, all kinds of bias. Mm -hmm. You don't even know we are practicing or are doing it. Thank you. Any of the things you pointed out come from the current administration, and yet Mm -hmm. 90% of Republicans support the current administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fake versus real. Mm -hmm. Fake versus real. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say a college-rate culture. Mm-hmm. Thank you, yeah. In New Mexico we have a teacher shortage, particularly with special education educators. Mm-hmm. Stigmatization of mental illness. Mental mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And reproductive rights. Yeah, there's a lot. Go ahead, please. It's like the white women are still supporting our administration, even with all of the things that are known about them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Generational trauma with Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Animal cruelty and farm-raised animals. Food injustice for some communities. Thank you. Yeah, food deserts. Homelessness and endangered species. Thank you. Homelessness and endangered species. Yeah, so we could go on, sadly, right? (laughs) We could go on. And so we know these, but our, our children know these too. They're not sheltered from this any longer. So when we come together, and this is why the strength of community is so important, right? And, and another thing that... Um, and, and one of you mentioned the relational field around it, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but this is a lot for any one person to hold mm-hmm. alone. It's a lot for any child to hold. And so one thing that I highly encourage is community. And then also the many aspects of practices of compassion and loving-kindness and care, because we can get really out of balance. We can tip so far into the agony zone and, you know, that term compassion fatigue and all these ways, and a lot of activists and, and educators quit, right? They're like, I can't do it anymore and have to run and leave to go take care of themselves. And so one of the beautiful things about the mindfulness practice, I, I read this quote somewhere, and I don't, it's, I'm going to make it my own because I don't remember who said it, so now I'm saying it, is that the heart can hold everything, but ego gets exhausted. So if we throw ourselves, our agendas, our needs, our limited ability into things, we, we will get exhausted. There was a Sufi poet who said, passion burns down every branch of exhaustion. And I love that. I had it on my refrigerator forever because I was doing a lot of work in communities. That was hard. And um, But I felt energized. I, I felt full. I felt a lot of love and connection. Um, so the encouragement of when We're in our mindfulness practice when we're sitting and what seems so mundane about connecting to my heart, I mean my body, my breath, right? Okay, body, breath, big deal. Boring, 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 boring. I'd rather be, or whatever starts to happen. But then do you notice what happens when you have just even a moment, a moment of calm, a moment of peace, a moment of serenity? that's what we're doing here because those moments actually do grow they string together they get greater they give us this foundation of strength of of courage they give us the capacity to hold (coughs) that which feels insurmountable and this isn't a sales pitch it's just true it's just true I mean this practice (coughs) saved my life Right? it truly did. And that's not that doesn't mean that painful, sad things don't happen. Because then that would be ignorance, right That would be going back to the what can't I control old age sickness death, all of those things it's just true like gravity. So we're not looking at the ignorance of the fact that pain and suffering exists. What we're looking at is how can we as practitioners, build the capacity to hold it. And, that, and, and it's a different kind of holding than we've ever really known. You know, it's not, it's not this. It's not bearing it. It's spacious. One thing I noticed while we were walking on the trail, and I've noticed this before on trails, but I've never actually said it out loud, is that, you know how those of you who walked on the trail or have been walking here at all, we have to look down so that we don't hurt ourselves, right? We don't want to twist an ankle. We don't want to fall or whatever. And at the same time, there's an expanse of beauty to look at. So if we're only looking down, if that's all we're doing when we're walking on the trail, we're, we're going to miss all of this. But if we're only doing this, then we're going to hurt ourselves. <laughs> we're going to fall. We will fall. Or step on something. And so... I, Oftentimes the practice feels like that to me. It's this, at times we need to be focused on the breath, the body, get really concentrated, get more narrow, and get still, right? And then at times we need to go like this and open our vision, our sight, our heart, our view to everything. And it's just, it's a, we don't get it right. But we just learn, wisdom tells us when we need what we need. Sometimes I need this, sometimes I need to look at the trail so I don't fall. And sometimes I need to see the whole view and the beauty and the expansiveness of it all. Right? And so really see it for the next few days with your practice. Okay, when do I need to do this? And then of course we'll carry this out into our lives. And when do I need to do this? And it's just this this play we do. I don't feel like I've told you everything I want to tell you. (laughs) But I am gonna stop there. And I'm gonna stop with um, gratitude for all of you, for who you are, for what you're doing, for how you showed up. A lot of courage, yeah. So thank you. I probably have a poem, but I don't know. Maybe I'll save it for later. (laughs) I kinda like this. As awakening increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our hearts a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. We could never have believed that we had harbored such things. And we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. And so why I like that is because this practice really shines the light really closely on, on what's going on. And at first it's like, oh, oh, no, 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 can't be true. Right, but just better to see than not see. This country's been not seeing for a really fucking long time. Right, that's a big part of this. It's not just this president a long ass time so we here get the opportunity to start to see clearly to shine the light brighter okay let's sit for a few minutes thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit